virtue or sila is the beautiful beginning of the path to liberation. The deep peace of samadhi is the beautiful middle. And wisdom is the beautiful end. Although they can be separated as three unique aspects of the training, as we look into them more and more deeply, these three qualities converge as one. To uphold virtue, you have to be wise. Usually we advise people to first develop ethical standards by keeping the five precepts so that their virtue will become solid. However, the perfection of virtue takes a lot of wisdom. We have to consider our speech and actions and analyse their consequences. This is all the work of wisdom. Therefore, we have to rely on our wisdom in order to cultivate virtue. Wisdom purifies our actions and speech. Once we become familiar with ethical and unethical behaviour, we see the place to practice. We abandon what's wrong and cultivate what's right. This is virtue. As we do this, the heart becomes increasingly firm and steadfast. A steadfast and unwavering heart is free of apprehension, remorse and confusion concerning our actions and speech. This is samadhi. This stable unification of mind forms a secondary and more powerful source of energy in our Dharma practice, allowing a deeper contemplation of the sights, sounds, and so on that we experience. Once the mind is established with firm and unwavering mindfulness and peace, we can engage in sustained inquiry into the reality of the body, feeling, perception, thought, consciousness, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations and objects of mind. As these things continually arise, we investigate with a sincere determination not to lose our mindfulness. 
Only in this way do we come to know what they actually are and that they come into existence following their own natural truth. Once there is clear comprehension of the way things truly are, our old perceptions are uprooted and our conceptual knowledge transforms into wisdom. That's how virtue, samadhi and wisdom merge and function as one. As wisdom increases in strength and intrepidity, samadhi evolves to become increasingly firm. The more unshakable samadhi is, the more unshakable and all-encompassing virtue becomes. As virtue is perfected, it nurtures samadhi and the additional strengthening of samadhi leads to a maturing of wisdom. These three aspects of training mesh and intertwine. United, they form the Noble Eightfold Path, the Way of the Buddha. Once virtue, samadhi and wisdom reach their peak, this path has the power to eradicate those things that defile the mind's purity, the klesa. If the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If the knowing isn't quick and nimble enough, as forms, feelings, perceptions and thoughts are experienced, they will possess and devastate us. However, if the noble path is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. The path and the defilements proceed in tandem. As Dharma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind. But it's just the path of the Dharma and the defilements struggling to win domination of the heart. When virtue, samadhi and wisdom have attained full strength, the path of dharma is unstoppable, advancing unceasingly to overcome the attachment and clinging that brings us so much anguish. Suffering can't arise because the path is destroying the defilements. 
It's at this point that the cessation of suffering occurs. Once we've arrived at this peace, even if we hear a noise, the mind remains unruffled. Once we've reached this peace, there's nothing remaining to do. The Buddha taught us to give it all up. Whatever happens, there's nothing to worry about. It is then that we truly, unquestionably, know for ourselves and no longer simply believe what other people say. If there's only a little clarity of insight, we call this little vipassana. When clear seeing increases a bit, we call that moderate vipassana. If knowing is fully in accordance with the truth, we call that ultimate vipassana. Personally, I prefer to use the word wisdom, panya, rather than vipassana. I think if we're going to sit down from time to time and practice Vipassana meditation, we're going to have a very difficult time of it. Insight has to proceed from peace and tranquility. The entire process will happen naturally of its own accord. We can't force it. The Buddha taught that this process matures at its own rate. Whether the progress is swift or slow is out of our control. It's just like planting a tree. The tree knows how fast it should grow. If we want it to grow more quickly than it is, this is pure delusion. If we do the work, the results will be forthcoming, just like planting a tree. If we achieve enlightenment in this lifetime, that's fine. If we have to wait until our next lifetime, no matter. We have faith and unfaltering conviction in the Dharma. Whether we progress quickly or slowly is up to our innate capabilities, spiritual aptitude and the merit we've accumulated so far. Practicing like this puts the heart at ease.
when you begin to cultivate the serenity of samatha meditation. Don't make the mistake of trying once or twice and then giving up because the mind is not peaceful. That's not the right way. You have to cultivate meditation over a long period of time. Why does it have to take so long? Think about it. How many years have we allowed our minds to wander astray? How many years have we not been doing samatha meditation? Whenever the mind has ordered us to follow it down a particular path, we've rushed after it. To calm that wandering mind, to bring it to a stop, to make it still, a couple of months of meditation won't be enough. Whenever we experience a mood or emotion, we should examine it in terms of its impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selfless qualities. Then reflect and investigate. Observe how these defiled emotions are almost always accompanied by excessive thinking. Wherever a mood leads, thinking straggles along behind. Thinking merely reacts to and follows our moods, and they carry on with no end in sight. But if wisdom is operating, it will bring the mind to stillness. The mind stops and doesn't go anywhere. There is simply knowing and acknowledging what is being experienced. When this emotion comes up, this mind is like this. When that mood comes, it is like that. We sustain the knowing. Eventually it occurs to us, all this thinking, this aimless mental chatter, 
this worrying and judging. It's all insubstantial nonsense. It's all impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not me or mine. Toss it into one of these three all-encompassing categories and quell the uprising. Cut it off at its source. Later, when we again sit in meditation, it will come up again. Keep a close watch on it. Spy on it. The Buddha said that those who keep a close watch over their minds will be liberated from Mara's snare. And yet this knowing mind is also the mind. So who is the one observing the mind? Such ideas can make you extremely confused. The mind is one thing, the knowing another. And yet, the knowing originates in this very same mind. What does it mean to know the mind? What's it like to encounter moods and emotions? What's it like to be without any defiled emotions whatsoever? That which knows what these things are is what is meant by the knowing. The knowing observantly follows the mind. And it's from this knowing that wisdom is born. The mind is that which thinks and gets entangled in emotions, one after another. When the mind experiences an emotion and instantly grabs it, it's the job of the knowing to teach. Examine the mood to see if it's good or bad. Explain to the mind how cause and effect functions.
and when it again grabs onto something that it thinks is adorable, the knowing has to again teach the mind to explain cause and effect until the mind is able to cast that thing aside. This leads to peace of mind. After finding out that whatever it grabs and grasps is inherently undesirable, the mind simply stops. It can't be bothered with those things anymore. Thwart the craving of the mind with determination. Challenge it to its core until the teachings penetrate to the heart. Practice with unflinching dedication. If you want to practice Dharma, then please try not to think too much. If you're meditating and you find yourself trying to force specific results, then it's better to stop. When your mind settles down to become peaceful and you think, that's it, that's it, isn't it? Is this it? Then stop. Take all your analytical and theoretical knowledge. Wrap it up and store it away in a chest. And don't drag it out for discussion or to teach. That's not the type of knowledge that penetrates inside. When the reality of something is seen, it's not the same as the written descriptions. For example, let's say we write down the word sensual desire. When sensual desire actually overwhelms the heart, it's impossible for the written word to convey the same meaning as the reality. It's the same with anger. We can write the letters on a blackboard. But when we're actually angry, the experience is not the same. We can't read those letters fast enough and the heart is engulfed by rage. This is an extremely important point. 
the theoretical teachings are accurate, but it's essential to bring them into our hearts. It must be internalized. If the Dharma isn't brought into the heart, it's not truly known. It's not actually seen. Everything I've said so far is simply for you to listen to and think about. It's just talk, that's all. When people come to see me, I speak. These sorts of subjects aren't the things we should sit around and gab about for hours. Just do it. Get in there and do it. It's like when we call a friend to go somewhere. We invite them and we get an answer. Then we're off. Without a big fuss. We say just the right amount and leave it at that. I can tell you a thing or two about meditation because I've done the work. But you know, maybe I'm wrong. Your job is to investigate and find out for yourself if what I say is true.